Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! And a hearty good welcome to you. Thank you for listening to our uh, installment of Rated LGBT Radio. Um, welcome to our podcast. We have a really great show lined up for you today, which you know I promised you last time, and we are delivering. Um, this show is kind of um, along the lines of a theme that we started when uh, a few weeks ago when we had Michael Kearns, the uh, kind of the legacy LGBTQ actor of Hollywood from the 80s and, and on, and uh, doing all sorts of projects, including a play in Palm Springs right now. Um, but when Michael was on, we talked about the portrayal of gay people in television primarily. And um, in that conversation, he made reference to the fact that he was often cast as a, as a gay man in, and was a gay man playing a gay man. But he was always asked to be very cliché in those parts, signaling, wink, wink, you know, this is a gay character, etc. And he made comment about the straight people who played those parts, that they um, kind of overdid that wink, wink, I'm playing gay um, in their portrayals. And if they didn't do that in their portrayals, certainly in the PR and talk shows and everything they did afterwards, you know, they first made it very, very clear that they weren't gay and um, kind of walked back any kind of association with the character. Well, today's guest is one of the movers and shakers in film that is seeking to create, um, correct that kind of uh, legacy um, with films coming out. Um, our guest today is the incredibly talented James Patrick Nelson. Um, James has been in numerous films uh, and uh, um, and has won awards for them, many of which have been seen in a lot of the film festivals of late. Um, uh, he is, uh, comes from theater background in New York, from off-Broadway. Uh, he is a writer, he's an actor, he's a producer, and he is working on a new production, which he will talk to us about for years to come, which uh, comes from his own experience. And i um, very excited to talk to him about that. He recently wrote an article for the L.A. Blade magazine, or appearing in the L.A. Blade, um, called For Years to Come. I'm sorry, that isn't the name of the article. That's the name of his production. His, the article is called I am, a Fear, I am a Queer Filmmaker, Can I Tell You My Story? And that is kind of the theme of what he has started to stand for, is a queer filmmaker who's telling authentic stories, and, um, and he has a brilliant psychology behind why that is important, and um, uh, particularly for the LGBTQ audiences. So uh, James is standing in the wings, and excited to talk to him in a few minutes. Um, but first, I'm going to bring on Brody Leck. Brody, as you know, is a co-host of the show, as well as the editor of the Los Angeles Blade, and... Um, has some news for us, um, including the election this week and something going on at the Supreme Court. Brody, welcome to the show. Hey, good afternoon, Rob. Good afternoon, good morning, good day. Thank you to all of our listeners around the world. We appreciate you subscribing uh, and checking in with us weekly. Um, let's start with the elections. Uh, Tuesday was not a good day for the Democrats. Uh, it was slightly better for LGBTQ uh, politicians uh, and candidates across the U.S. According to uh, the Victory Fund, uh, the LGBTQ political types picked up about roughly 1,000 offices, which is an incredible amount in an off year. So congratulations. Uh, a, spe a special note, I need to point out, that the city council of the city of Salt Lake, Utah, now has a majority LGBTQ 
uh, makeup, which that's a first for the city of Salt Lake. It's certainly a first for the state of Utah, um, and that is a really cool thing. Um, across the board, uh, we did fairly well. Uh, Senator Danica, I mean, excuse me, Delegate Danica Rome uh, in Virginia was reelected. Uh, Danica was the first out transgender lawmaker in the U.S. when she first won her seat. Uh, she represents an area in suburban Washington, D.C., uh, in Prince William County, Virginia, uh, and she was reelected. Sadly and unfortunately, however, the state of Virginia uh, elected itself the top three officials, all Republican. Uh, the governor, Glenn Youngkin, uh Ms. Sears is a lieutenant governor, and then, of course, the attorney general of the Commonwealth, uh, all of whom are Republican. Uh, and sadly, all of them were unfortunately very much anti-LGBTQ, uh, particularly the new governor, uh, who's made it really clear uh, that he doesn't believe in transgender rights. And as a matter of fact, he ran on the issue of trans equality uh, in Virginia schools uh, in terms of education and things like that. They can't do anything about the bathrooms, fortunately, because the U.S. Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals already fixed that one, so they can't kick the kids out of the bathroom. Uh, but this is going to lay the groundwork uh for another litany of anti-LGBTQ action, uh, and it's kind of a sad thing. Um, in New Jersey, uh, the incumbent governor was running against a former assemblyman who also was extremely homophobic and transphobic. Fortunately, beat him. Not by much, but enough to where he got reelected. However, across the country, it just it really didn't look good. So um, most people are taking a look at what's going to be happening moving forward as we start into the 2022 uh, congressional races. Uh, looking at what happened Tuesday night is kind of a precursor of what we may be able uh, to see and expect uh, next year. If that is, in fact, the case and the Republicans are able to take back uh, both houses of Congress, which in the case of the Senate wouldn't be that much effort because it's a 50-50 split. But there's only a seven-seat spread in the U.S. House. If the Republicans take it all back, that effectively ends the Biden presidency. So it, it's just going to be something that most people aren't really looking forward to. And, of course, one of the things that we saw in this election cycle, um, quite frankly, was the president's dip. Uh, to a 40, a 42% approval uh, rating didn't help. Uh, so across the board, Tuesday was really not too good for the Democrats. And depending upon if they can do a recovery and a unification and move themselves forward uh, as we go into this uh, congressional election, you know, off-year cycle. Um, yeah, it's just going to be bad, quite frankly, uh, for progressives and Democrats in general. And we're also seeing another. Well, hopefully, hopefully it'll be a wake-up call. I mean, hopefully it will be you know a, a, a warning across the bow that you know things have got to to get going. And um, you know, for for two things, one, if they're going to pass stuff, they better pass it beforehand if they're not going to yep. be in power afterwards. And we had um, the the end of don't ask, don't tell was something that happened in a similar situation in the past where it was done in the 11th hour, um, um, almost to the 12th hour where the Democrats were going to lose control. And um, they, they got it through at that point. And of course that, that stage changed. So if they're, they're going to have a huge effect, they need to get off the dime just in case, but even more to the point, you know, have a year to make something happen, you know, and probably the pulling out of Afghanistan in such a haphazard way, you know, um, in, in the way that went down was not a good thing. Well, and the economy, uh, I mean, it's not just Afghanistan, you know, the entire package. Um, and of course now you have to look at not so much the Republicans, but the disunity in the democratic party itself, 
uh, political commentator uh, James Carvel pointed out that one of the things that's killing the Democrats and killing, you know, overall uh, liberal politics and liberal leaning, polit- you know, voters is this woke cancel cu- culture. Uh, Carvel rightly says that the woke cancel culture needs to be canceled itself because it's doing more damage than it's doing good. You can't bring concession. You can't bring, you know, any kind of reproachment between, you know, people when you've got them saying all or one. And this is what has always been traditionally a problem uh, in left-wing politics is that if you get the more extremist ones away from the moderates who are running this puritanical look at things and running purity tests, or as the kids call it, woke, you know, and cancel stuff, uh, this is where you're going to run into a problem. It ended up being a factor in Tuesday's elections as well. You know, there has to come a point where you do have to strike the compromise and a midway point. But the Democrats right now are disunified. The moderates and the progressives are fighting. Um, and until they are able to sort that out, the Biden White House continues to flounder. And the other part of the problem, as people have pointed out, um, is that there's not a real sense of leadership coming from the White House on this. So it's kind of a, it's a comedy of errors, if you will. And it just is not voted well. Yeah. yeah. So, so we'll, we'll, we'll keep an eye on it. So what's happening yeah. over the Supreme Court? Well, they had arguments, the oral arguments in uh, Texas Senate Bill 8. Uh, SB 8, of course, is the abortion ban that was put into effect that has a rather unique twist to it. Rather than have the state enforce it, the state basically licensed private individuals to enforce uh, going after anybody who provides, has, or has anything at all to do with an abortion at six weeks and beyond. The problem, number one, is at six weeks, most women don't even realize they're pregnant. The second part of it is the state is basically deputizing, if you will, private citizens to sue the hell out of other people, okay, for providing abortions or getting abortions. As a result, they pretty much shut down, you know, women's reproductive right clinics all over the state of Texas. At issue here is the constitutionality of that law. Can a state authorize its citizenry to act as its agent? Interestingly enough, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, queried the Texas Solicitor General Stone about that very point. And what Kavanaugh wanted to know was, if you do this with abortion, what's stopping them from doing it with gun control and gun rights? Okay. And other rights that, you know, have been decided upon by this court even, meaning the high court, you know, at what point, you know, do you stop? Okay. Um, And, and, to his credit, the Texas Solicitor General acknowledged that is really a reality. It's a real problem. So what you may end up with is a case that if the high court rules on this and allows it and says, oh, yeah, this is constitutional, you're going to end up with some serious, messy legislative efforts, which have already occurred, by the way. Ohio has just introduced a bill that is almost mirror carbon copy of the Texas bill. So it, it's starting this pile on. And, and again, it, it goes back to, you know, kind of what one commentator said to me, you know, is America's biggest Achilles heel, okay, is its own First Amendment and protection of religious freedoms and liberties because it's a license to discriminate. And there right. is no constitutional safeguard for people to have rights outside of, you know, the religious passage right. And that's basically what it boils down to. So the question becomes, which way will the court go on this? The justices sounded, and I listened to all three hours of the hearing, and I've got to tell you, okay, even the conservative judges, they were extremely skeptical sounding. So there's a good chance that this law probably won't stand. But then the next part of it is it's got to go back through the process, it was brought to the high court to get an emergency injunction, which the Fifth U.S. Circuit overturned. 
and the Justice Department is saying, wait, whoa, this thing should not take effect while the legal fight's going on. The U.S. District right. Judge in Austin had already said, now you can't enforce the law or the provisions of it. The Fifth Circuit overturned it. The Biden administration turned around and did the emergency appeal, and that's what led to the hearing earlier in the week. Right. So their their conversations are really not about abortion itself, but more around the structure of this law and who has standing, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, um, because that is an interesting question. I mean, it means that in California, for example, they could pass a law saying that um, anybody who has a gun can be sued by any private individual uh, for having a gun, and um, and that person will win because that gun is a threat. Exactly. And yeah. I, okay. Believe it or not, that was the argument raised by the conservative justices. <laughs> yeah, no, so. well, good. Well, good. Um, anything else going on, Brody, before we move on? Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things where uh, Equality California today launched its safe school study. Uh, again, we have other LGBT organizations across the country. As these schools are now going back and in person, we're seeing higher incidences of violence against LGBTQ youth and students. Um, and this is something that both uh, um, Gleason and, and the Equality Federation members, including EQ California, uh, are trying to get a handle on. Um, and so that's, that's also kind of a backdrop happening uh, in the news as well. Excellent. Okay, well, thank, thank you for that report. Uh, we're now going to move on to our special guest, the very talented producer, writer, actor, James Patrick Nelson. Um, James is uh, starring in a, or is, is a featured actor in an upcoming film, I believe that's out this year, uh, called Love in Kilnarney, uh, Kilnary, and uh, he is also... Um, the producer, writer of a couple of other films that have been in the, the film festival circuit. He is working on a current project uh, for years to come, and uh, that also is super exciting. So uh, with that, I'd like to welcome him to the show. Hey, Jamie, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having We're me. We're doing great. Oh, very excited to, to have you. So let's let's take take you back a little bit in your story. You um, were born and raised in uh, Los Angeles, I believe, but ended up in Boston mm-hmm. and New York for some early training in the theater. How how did yes, you end up great. there? I I grew up in L.A. and uh, as as exciting as L.A. is, I think that uh, as a kid, one always kind of wants to get as far away from where you grew up as possible, and I. <laughs> I, I I was lucky to train at a really amazing um, at, at the Los Angeles County High School for the Arts from the time I was 14. And so there was a lot of, looking back on it, insanely blessed and uh, advanced uh, theater work from uh, you know Shakespeare and Chekhov and mask work and a lot of physical movement studies and, and stuff that really just made me want to want to go to New York, want to go to somewhere where theater was valued for its own sake and where there was, I wanted to go somewhere really where everybody was close together. You know, the thing that we had to sacrifice during the pandemic, I wanted to be somewhere where your life was right outside on the street and you were constantly in the mix of things and surrounded by art and artists. And so I fled to the other side of the country to go train at the Boston university school of theater, which is a wonderful program. Um, and did two years of regional theater and national tours after I graduated and then moved to New York. And, and which in New York, you then did a lot of off-Broadway uh, productions as well, correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah, I was really lucky, like, a few months after I moved here to get cast in some exciting off-Broadway productions for a few seasons. And then there was a lot of great regional theater and then a period where I really started to want to make my own work. And in the last couple of years, it's all started to happen on top of itself, off-Broadway stuff and regional stuff and more of my own projects starting to to come to fruition and in film and TV as well. So in a lot of your film work and the acting work um, that you do in front of the camera, 
your um, your characters are always very nuanced, um, very authentic. You know, it's it's um, <laughs> very so. deeply character developed. No, I, I mean, I think I think that that's true. I, and my personal bias is that theater is kind of the ground zero for the acting um, uh, craft. I mean, that that is, if you can be authentic and and be real in theater then you 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 can go anywhere and do it um you know it's not like reality tv in front of a, a camera type um type acting um how do you feel theater molded you for what you are are coming to be now it's a fascinating question i i love the way that you phrased that a moment ago um I mean, I suppose we could we could talk about just that one subject all night. I think that it's um, <laughs> I think that for any I think that for any actor, there's certainly a great value in having a, a training and a background in theater because uh, because it's there's such a you know centuries of extraordinary stories that you get to work on that deepen your understanding of of character and relationships and and drama um i feel like i learned a lot about how to become a writer by being an actor in the theater for a long time too honestly um but i think and in terms of the the craft i think it's it's more similar than than some folks might give it credit aside from the obvious differences of playing to the last row of the balcony versus a camera that's right in front of your face but but i right. I, I think the thing that really um it's probably most relevant to, to, to mention in, in about that is that I was um, I, I I've been I've been an out gay person for about 20 years now and I've been a, a working professional actor for about um, over a decade and the last play that I did um, before the pandemic was a play called Immortal Longings which was a, a world premiere play by the the great Terence McNally who who tragically passed away from COVID-19 and extraordinary, uh, legendary playwright who wrote Lips Together, Teeth Apart and Love, Valor, Compassion and so many extraordinary um, plays, which had queer protagonists in them long before it was nearly as possible as it is now. And we were doing a a play about the the Russian ballet and the Russian revolution and Diaghilev and Nijinsky. And I realized as we were performing coincidentally during the the 50th anniversary of Stonewall that summer in 2019 um, that it was the first time in my professional life I'd ever actually been hired to play a a gay person as long as I'd been out and as long as I'd been working. So that, that one particular experience in the theater really sort of um, ignited a lot of what I've been enthusiastic about in creating my own work since then. Yeah, it's interesting um, bringing up McNally because I think in a lot of his work, the characters are drawn in a way that you described in your recent article that you put out and, you know, a subject that I know is close to your heart, which is the portrayal of LGBT people in plays, TV, film, and how um, they are – they have been traditionally in mainstream done in a little more cliche way. They've done it in, you know, sort of these narrow, narrow storylines and McNally's work are much more three dimensional, full blown humans that happen to be LGBTQ. Um, and obviously that's the subject we want to talk about today. What, why don't you start us off? What, what are your feelings about those portrayals and those, development of characters. I mean, I, I mean, I agree. Terrence's work is extraordinary and, and, and incredibly nuanced. Um, and, and many other people's is as well. I, but I think the, the broad point that you're, you're speaking to is true indeed that we, and the, the, and granted, I want to be um, respectful too of the fact that the, that the things that we call cliches or the, the behavior that, that is familiar to us from some characters in some pop culture is very consistent with a lot of people's authentic expression. And, and if that's the case, that's fantastic and extraordinary. But I, I think that a lot of 
media and what you were speaking about earlier about the actor that you interviewed a couple of weeks ago, what he said about it. The, the reason that a lot of queer characters in film and TV in years and decades past had a certain kind of stereotypical presentation that had a little bit of a, of a wink wink to it was was because if there wasn't that wink wink, if there wasn't that particular kind of behavior, we would never know that the character was gay because we never actually spent enough time with them to know by any other means, you know, and right. my, my assertion is that we should tell more stories where queer people are actually at the center of the drama, where they are the principal character and where their, their love interest potentially is the principal character. And so we know we, we, we understand their queerness not just because of how they present, but because of who they are and the details of their life, because we actually get to know them a little bit, you know? Yeah, and I think, and I agree with you, that it, it is often expediency. You know, it's like they're introducing a character, they have ten lines, they they want to convey immediately that this is a gay character, and so, boom, um, they frame it up that way. Um, I think um, in a lot of the films, especially in the independent realm, um, a lot of European films and foreign films may have done a better job in their characterization. And it's like there's so many of those films where the LGBTQ character is it's, it's just folded in as part of their fabric and not quite so two-dimensionally presented. Um, I want to go, though, to the thing that you talked about in your article, because I think you really nailed it there um, in terms of framing that discussion, is kind of the, the Will and Grace, Will versus Jack um, syndrome, if you will. Um, can, you, can you talk sure. to us about that that you, that you brought up when, and what your dad has yes. said to you? Yes, and I and I want to make sure that it's clear at the outset that that what I'm uh, referring to is not in any way uh, a criticism or indictment of Will and Grace. I think that Will and Grace was an extraordinary show and, and completely revolutionary for its time and did so much good for the world that we're living in now. What I what I say in the article is more is really more an indictment of the the time that we were living in when that show first appeared because when I when I first came out to my father when I was 14, which was in the year 2000, my God, um, we had, we, we had a, a conversation on the ride home. And, and one of the things that he said to me was, be Will instead of Jack, <laughs> which um, even at the time was sort of striking and befuddling a little bit. And I... And, and it could have been a lot worse, obviously. I mean, like, my, my family was wonderful, and they were accepting. I wasn't kicked out of the house. I wasn't beaten. I wasn't shunned. Like, it was I, – I was tremendously blessed and, and lucky, so I, I don't mean to suggest otherwise. But the, the comment was, was curious because aside from being openly sort of fen-shaming, which – and my father said to me recently that the reason that he said that was because he didn't want me to, to be a target for me to get bullied, which – I understand as a protective parent impulse, but at the same time, it's like if a presentation or a, a, a way of being that is akin to the Jack character on Will and Grace was my authentic self, then I ought to be able to, to be that no matter what happens. Um, but really what was so striking about it was I, 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 saw, I, he said that and I thought, well, why couldn't I just be me? You know, like why, why is there this, this binary choice of you're either sort of more hetero presenting or you're really flamboyant and those are the only options. But it was framed that way because in those days, Will and Grace was kind of the one reference point that we had for the most part, um, Right. Other shows, yeah. But it was like, you know, there were so few uh, stories told about queer people that we that we have these very limited reference points of how we're supposed to be. And then if the nuances of who we are don't match that, then it's, you know, it's harder work for us to figure out who we are as we as we grow. Which is uh, filmically or, or storytelling is actually a more interesting thing is why 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 do we need to hear the same? character came same story over and over again uh, just to relate to what your experience with your dad when i came out um and i came out to some co-workers one of which was uh 
uh, born-again Christian. She had never really known gay people, et cetera. We were out to lunch, and she was totally accepting of me, and, you know, it was, you know, know, things were going great. And we're sitting in a restaurant in West Hollywood, and the – one of the people at the next table was somebody, you know, you could, we could overhear their conversation or whatever, but he was, um, you know, had some effeminate mannerisms, nothing that would have even been cliche if it was portrayed on television, just, you know, it's just some expressions and mannerisms or whatever. And she kind of leaned over mm-hmm. to me and she goes, well, now just to be clear, you would never like go out with someone like that. Right. And oh, wow. that, that, you know, it, it, that, that, question offended me then and offends me now um, kind of to my core just because it's like and I turned to her and said yeah I probably would you know it's like like mm. it's almost incredulous because it was is like that, that I mean there it was it was again tying that that character or those characterizations as being somehow offensive. And it, I mean, it almost comes down to a deep seated misogyny. It's like if men yeah. have any kind of things that are the least bit um, feminine, that that is offensive. And, you know, and, and you want to take that to extreme. It, it goes to the extreme of violence that uh, transgender women experience, you know, because they've Completely. committed the ultimate crime of, of doing that and crossing that. Um, so it, yeah, so I, I, yeah. I, I totally and I think get it's perpetuated that. by the, and I think what you're talking about is perpetuated still these days by the fact that on, on the occasion when we have stories where the queer character is central enough to the plot that they actually get to have a love interest and, you know, have a romantic partner, it seems as though they're virtually always played by heterosexual actors or played with uh, some degree of, um, of kind of hetero presentation. So that, right. that, that thing that you're pointing to, that sort of preference for a kind of general heteromasculine ideal, still very perpetuated, you know, and, 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 you know, and I, and I admit to it, I admit to that kind of internalized homophobia, like it's something that has sat in me for a long time and that I think a lot of queer folks have to, to actively disassemble within ourselves because the, aside from the fact that, uh, that, for the, for the most part, what we grew up watching were heterosexual love stories, and therefore we cast ourselves in the Meg Ryan part. You know, we cast ourselves as the woman. And, Guilty. And, and, oh, know, my God. Yeah. You, know, you know, and we fell in love with the straight man that she was falling in love with. Like, even, even occasionally when we, when we saw queer stories, it would I, – I just feel like I've still had moments in my recent past where I'm walking around in my real life looking for a boyfriend played by a heterosexual actor, you know, and, right. and it's, a, it, it's, it's something that we've got to disassemble. And being more authentic in how we cast is, is, I think, one key way to go about it. Yeah, no, I hear you completely. And one of the things I want to ask you about is sort of the flip side of that. Because, um, because in the last 20, 30 years, there have been more gay portrayals, uh, albeit, you know, like we were saying, a lot of them in cliche ways on television and in film. Um, has that given direction to young LGBTQ people about affectations to take on because of their identity. In other words, is it a chicken and the egg thing in a little bit that media has taught young gay people, um, you know, if, if you want to present as gay and you want to be out as gay, then, you know, go out and thumb it up because, you know, we're not, we're not only giving you permission, but we're actually giving you direction. Um, is there an effect like that, in your opinion? Uh, I, I don't I don't know I mean I'm I'm 35 now so I, I wouldn't presume to speak for anybody who's who's younger and what their experience might be I think that um, I mean I'm I'm 
I think there are still a lot of places left in the country and in the world where there are enough sort of dangers, some of which you pointed to, that uh, that still are just as persuasive in encouraging people to behave quite the opposite way, to to keep any of their fabulousness uh, inside so that they don't get hurt. And that's um, that feels like a higher stakes issue uh, to me. But 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 to the extent that what you're referring to may be true i think that's something that straight people uh, encounter just as much i think that that there's oh, yeah. um, you know that there that there's plenty of things in the media that that when we're very young we uh we absorb them and we sort of are guided to behave in a way that's mirroring something that we saw and then it sticks if it's really authentic to us and it gradually falls away if it isn't authentic to us um um yeah i suppose that's what i could say about that um yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that's a, a great point. Um, so, Jimmy, tell us about your recent projects. Um, um, what what films are out now that you're in, and um, and then we want to get to the project you have coming up. Yes. Um, uh, so you mentioned Love and Kill Mary. That's a really uh, delightful ensemble comedy I shot a few years ago that uh, where I was just an actor. Um, that is that has won awards in dozens of festivals across the country and is, is finally going to come out in theaters across the country in the next couple of months. We don't have all the details yet, but it's a, a really fun body comedy about a small town um, in New England where there's a chemical in the water that, uh, that uh, messes with everybody's libido. And I, I play the town priest who becomes a nudist to be more like Adam and Eve. I know that. Are, are you going to have to like ride around naked on a bicycle as, as they promote that film? Um, I, kind of I, I hope not. I, I hope not. No, no. I think that that poster is evolving, but, um, but um, that, that, that's love and canary. And then I, my first, um, my first foray into really being intentional about um, being a creative producer on, on my own work after I wrote, two feature screenplays which were made into films uh, that came out a few years ago and after those experiences I was really compelled to be a creative producer and my first venture was uh, a short film called Waking Up um, which is a single take piece um, that premiered at the Santa Barbara International Film Festival um, earlier this past spring and has played at a number of great LGBTQ plus film festivals since then. And and I can't say uh, all the details yet, but it's going to come out on a streaming platform in uh, in just a couple of weeks. So I'm excited about that. Oh, um, wow. Excellent. And I'll keep everybody posted. Um, but my, my current project that you've, you've referred to uh, is for years to come, which is... Uh, an episodic uh, romantic dramedy about a young gay man who falls in love with his dead mother's hospice nurse while struggling to reconcile with his elderly father, who is secretly a porn director. Now, a lot of that is it comes from your your own background. Can you talk to us about that? Yes. Yes. I, I mean, when my when my mother was dying, I found out that my father was a porn director. Um, that was uh, uh, the experience that happened in real life. And for years, I was trying to figure out how to how to make a story out of that and how those two incredibly kind of dissonant subjects, my mother is dead and my father's a porn director, uh, fit together in the same story. Um, and it wanted to be a play for a little while. It wanted to be a movie for a little while. And then right before the pandemic began, I, it occurred to me to adapt it into an episodic format. And, and when I did, it felt like everything cracked open and I understood the humor of it a lot better. And I understood how the sensuality of it. And I found space for the character's queerness to be a lot more um, present and authentic. Um, and we've just been off to the races ever since. I attached a director and a couple of co-producers during the pandemic and built a lot of uh, promotional materials, and we've been seeking the financing, and we're running a crowdfunding campaign right now, and we're going to shoot in L.A. in the next couple of months. Excellent. And when when you say it's uh, episodic, is it going to be like a sort of mini-series format, or do you see this as, as um, just a, an ongoing series? I mean, I think that uh, I remember recently listening to Shonda, Shonda Rhimes say that um, that you should always that you should leave everything out on the field, 
that even if you're incredibly fortunate to be a big hit show that's on the best network that has all of the best resources behind you, um, there's no way to ever guarantee that you're going to have uh, a second season. So it's always best think of the story as if it could be contained. And then if you are, you are fortunate to get to do more, then, uh, then it's exciting to get to do more. We're focused on the, the pilot episode right now on independently creating a, a half hour piece of episodic content. Um, which, which, and after we do that, there'll be various distribution strategies. And if slash when one of them yields and we get to make uh, more episodes, uh, that'll be a really exciting opportunity. No, that's wonderful. Tell us about the, the casting process and, and where are you in the production? Um, obviously ready to casting, go. Yeah, casting is, is still very much underway. I wanted to... Um, to get into casting once we solidified all of our budget. I have, uh, my director is called Micah Stewart. He's an amazing young LA based, uh, director and editor who was recently nominated for an Emmy for, uh, a webisode that he, that he directed recently called doomsday. And, uh, I have a delightful co-producer, Jedi Yonker, who's based in New York with me, who, uh, was a multi-hyphenate creator on a, a feature called Triple Threat that was killing it on the festival circuit this past year. Um, and, and we've attached a director of photography and a composer and a couple of other associate producers and our, our crowdfunding ends in uh, exactly one week. And, and once that's done and we've got our budget solidified, we can do the rest of the casting and start location scouting and, and get ready to start rolling. That, that's fantastic. It's uh, very exciting. We're how really can people excited. support yeah. you? Yeah, how can people the, support you? Uh, you, you, you mentioned the GoFunding process that's underway. Yes, there's a, there's a really extraordinary website for those who don't know called Seed and Spark, S-E-E-D-A-N-D-S-P-A-R-K.com, which is like a Kickstarter or an Indiegogo, but it's specifically for film and television. And it's very intentional about uh, inclusion statements. It's the only crowdfunding website I know that asks all of their creators to have an inclusion statement. So it's incredibly, it's an incredible resource for for women, for people of color, for LGBTQ plus folks, for any marginalized community to get to, um, to come together and to support one another and to create their, um, create their projects. And so for years to come is the name of the project, and it can be searched on seedandspark.com where uh, anybody who's interested can, uh, can make a pledge to support us. And the great thing about it is that it's it's always audience building first and fundraising second. So even for folks who aren't inclined or aren't in a position to be supportive uh, financially of a, of, a, of a project for somebody that they don't know, uh, there's still so much on that page that I'm, I'm really excited to share with folks. We've got an incredible pitch video that we've edited together and some, I think, really beautiful poster art that's been done for us and a, a summation of the project, a summary of it, and bios of the team and a lot of other fun, exciting stuff. So folks could go to seedandspark.com and search for, for years to come if they want to support. Excellent. Excellent. It sounds like a really, really intriguing project. And um, what do you, do you have the platform that it will be available on yet? Or is that also to come? That, that is, that is a forthcoming thing, which is, which is, um, which is pretty commonplace to be honest. I mean, most, right. um, most filmmakers, most artists, uh, especially folks who, uh, especially folks of one kind of marginalized identity or another, most of the time when you're a young filmmaker, you don't really have any certainty about what the distribution landscape for your project is ultimately going to be, um, which is why it's all the more exciting at this early stage of developing the project to uh, to already be proactively connecting with our audience and to be having the conversations that we're having now about the value that the work could have and why it might mean something to, um, to the folks who want to see it so that when it comes time to, to start seeking distribution, there's already an enthusiasm about it. Yeah, no, I, it makes total, total sense. Um, I want to segue over yeah. to um, themes that you brought up in uh, the article that appeared in the uh, Los Angeles Blaze, um, which is, yes. uh, and you had mentioned inclusion um, uh, you know, being being a factor, but uh, you went into 
kind of even more depth in terms of representation and um, inclusion, if you will, of the casting um, that has been done in a lot of major Hollywood films. Um, and why, why is that important? Well, well, I, I think it's self-evident why it's important. I mean, I think just as just as folks have been very vocal lately about how we need to have greater gender parity in our work and we need to have a, a little bit less of just constant whiteness in our work, we need to have greater racial diversity. I think that it's it's striking that that pretty much every famous person that that we that we can think of is heterosexual or still is sort of pressured to to be heterosexual i think that the um because the the films that are made within the sort of larger system where there is a lot of financial resources at stake and available uh it is still rightly assumed that the majority of audiences are cisgender heterosexual and so i think a lot of folks i hope wrongly are still assuming that the majority of audiences are homophobic and transphobic. And so we want, uh, we, we keep our sort of queer stories at a minimum and we want our, you know, famous people to, to present straight, like we were talking about before. But I think that having authentic, having queer folks actually get to tell their own stories, as, as is the case with any marginalized community, what the disabled community says, nothing about us without us. I think that, that, we we have to be there, you know. And then people are like, "Oh well, the writer was gay, the director was gay," and it's like, "Yeah, that's that's great, that's valuable, that's 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 a step forward." But that still kind of that's like nice. subtextually yeah. sounds like it still right. sort of sounds like people are saying, "Yeah, yeah, the person in the background, the person that we don't see is queer," like as if that were enough. But I just want to I want to live in a world where we get to. Um, where we can dismantle the notion that there's anything wrong with being queer or that there's anything shameful or private about being queer. And that, um, because if you look at all of the statistics of all of the, the queer characters that have been, you know, that have been lauded and applauded and that appear in, you know, Oscar nominated films over the last several years, the one thing that, that all of them have in common is that they're all played by cisgender heterosexual actors. And I, I don't think that that should be, you know, I think that when you right. actually right. have, and, and, and it's hard to talk about because sexuality is, is not inevitably apparent on, you know, at, at first glance all the time, you know, it's a, it's a harder issue to talk about than other issues of representation, but I think it's just as important. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I loved in, um, actually there's a montage that goes with the article and I, one of the pictures that stood out to me just because, um, it is really from a different era. There's a picture from the, the film Rebecca, um, where oh. <laughs> the sexuality is actually, it is, it, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's, it's absolutely right to be represented there because it was a subtext that is never spoken of Mrs. Danvers having this huge emotional um, crush, if you will, or love interest in the, never seen Rebecca in the film, but, but it was of an era where anything lesbian for, for decades was always portrayed as not only were they lesbian, but they were murderous. <laughs> they were right. always right. murderers. You know, it was like there was right. this tying of, of lesbianism and that kind of, of evil. But it, it's also just really jarring to see all the name famous faces that have, and many of which have won Oscars and, and awards for portraying LGBTQ people. Um, yeah. And yeah, you know, it's, Go ahead. And it's no, and it's no, the, the, the photo that you're referring to was, was from a, a, an article that the, the advocate put out a few years ago. That was a list of 60 some odd uh, cisgender heterosexual actors who were nominated for Oscars for playing, uh, for playing queer characters. And it's not, it's not meant to be any kind of critique on any of those actors who were all extraordinarily talented. And in most cases gave very nuanced, beautiful, performances and it's and it's not um to refer to the conversation you were having earlier it's not meant to be like uh 
a sort of cancel culture thing or to, to say to them, it's not meant to right. say to them, you're not allowed. It's not meant to say you, you don't get to do this anymore. It's just to say, like, think, think about the rest of us. Like, think about the extent to which an, an actor who is just as talented as anybody else may still be, uh, may still have a harder time becoming more visible and more known and more successful and therefore more likely to be offered those parts because of their queerness. You know, we still live in a, a system, I think, where a person's queerness somewhat impedes them from getting a, a, a certain degree of visibility and success that puts them in a position to be offered those great roles. And, and I just think that that's something that we all need to keep working to, um, to disassemble and reimagine. Right. It, it seems like the, the water's got to rise evenly, though, because, and this is to your point and to your vision of more roles that are nuanced and thorough and have um, gay, lesbian, bi, queer people, um, transgender people, as the protagonist without the story being about their struggle of, of being yes. who they are, you know, yes. um, because, because as you like said, Rupert like Everett, we've, I was go just ahead, to say sorry. Rupert Everett, who did play a role that was sort of in that definition of, of an accessible, not cliche, authentic um, gay person um, has pointed to regret because he would never get offered a straight role um, after that, in his opinion. Mm. Um, so it, it, there's, there's almost got to be an encouragement that if a gay person does take that role, that they suddenly haven't limited their career. Um, but uh, but please I, do yeah, talk about but, the, the rest, yeah. But then again, I mean, I think I think Elliot Page said not too long ago that if that if he was only offered queer characters for the rest of his career, that uh, that that would be great. You know, I mean, I think right. that the notion of it being like limiting uh, is still unto itself derivative of a notion that there's only every now and again going to be queer characters. But what we're seeing is that there's queer characters almost there's lots of queer characters, you know, almost every single year somebody gets nominated for an Oscar for playing a queer character. It's just that they themselves are hardly ever queer. Um, but to your, but to your, your other point about the kinds of stories that we're telling, which I think is really the most important subject of the, of what we're discussing in, indeed we've made tremendous progress over the last several decades. And I, as I say in that article in the very beginning, the, the blessing of that progress is that it empowers us to be more confident in speaking up about the steps that we still need to take. And as, as you pointed to, we, we certainly have evolved past the era where queerness could only be vaguely alluded to because we had to get around to the Hayes Code and we were talking about queerness as though it were perversion. Like we've gotten past that. We've gotten past the the point of queer characters always being portrayed as, as, as the villains who had to be punished by the end or who, who, and we've, and we've kind of gotten past the, the, the narrative of queer people being in constant turmoil and suffering for their queerness, but, but not quite. I mean, it, it does still feel most of the time, like if the queer character isn't marginalized, if they're not a side character who presents in a stereotypical way so that we know that they're queer, but actually shows up as the central character to be the protagonist in the story, their queerness is usually the the primary source of conflict in the story, and it's something that right. is a source of turmoil or a source of doubt or a source of you know, and that also sort of like speaks to to a, a degree of ageism that we also have to deal with. It feels like uh, Abby McEnany, who who's the star of Work in Progress on Showtime, which is an extraordinary uh, extraordinary. Uh, comedy that um that much like what i'm endeavoring to do started off as an independent pilot and then got picked up um she's spoken a, a lot about this uh, as a, a person in uh, as a person in her 50s that 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 we don't see nearly enough uh adult and middle-aged and elder queer folks in um in storytelling because most media across sexual identities is marketed to a youth culture to begin with. I think that's part of right. it, but, but the, but 
consequently, like when we do see queer protagonists or queer people in relationships, they're, they're usually queer people in high school and in college and consequently going through all of the, the challenges of can I come out? Will I be accepted? Will right. I like be bullied? Will my parents accept me? Which are all valid, beautiful, like, you know, important, real struggles that people have. But I feel like it's important to, to remind folks that even if they are privileged as, as I am, as, as some are to, to, to endure those things, to be able to come out and to live in safe spaces and to be accepted by their peers, even though it does, quote, unquote, get better, we are still going to be human beings who are going to face all of the other kinds of struggles that life has to, to offer. And it would be good to, to tell some stories about, about that stuff as well so that we can see the, the greater breadth of our humanity. Yeah, no, absolutely. In fact, a lot of the films that have come out, coming out is, is kind of the theme of the gay character. Right? Yeah. I mean, you made a, a, a reference to the, the, it, the, their gayness being part of the, the conflict, and usually, or many times, that is the conflict. It's like they're coming yeah. to terms with it, they're coming out, they're, you know, how are people going to react to them, how are they reacting to themselves, et cetera. Um, I know when Love, Simon came out, um, a lot of the people that I'm around that are, you know, have been out, very comfortable in their lives and everything else, they look at that as a movie for straight people. They're like, okay, straight hmm. people go watch, see what, see what, see what we've had to, to deal with when we were younger. You know, it's like, but not as, you know, oh, that's a story of somebody that I now relate to. Yeah, I mean, and and inversely, I feel like a lot of the, I mean, and I'm not here to 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 critique or disparage anybody else's work, but I I think that um, inversely, at the same time, a lot of the really beautifully, authentically told, uh, unabashed romances between queer characters that you, as you referred to earlier, are are often made in in other countries around the world. Um, uh, beautifully made films, I, I think oftentimes it's still widely assumed that they're only meant for for gay audiences, you know, and I, I want right. somehow, and I speak about this in the article, somehow for us to keep working on the idea that, that authentic, nuanced, multidimensional stories about queer protagonists are for all audiences. You know that that we're that we're neither only trying to speak to our community nor are we trying to to be assimilationist and and appeal to them to to give people to give straight people what theoretically they might want but but being our most authentic selves as the star of a story should should be something that anybody can relate to because because queer audiences have been watching straight protagonists and finding ourselves <laughs> in them ad infinitum for our entire lives and so if there's a universality to the conflict, if it's more than just about coming out, if it's in the case of my project about losing a parent and not knowing immediately what the grief experience for that is going to be like and being confronted by the grief experience being a little bit different from what you expected and trying to reconnect with a parent where your relationship has so many different nuances and challenges separate and apart from being gay. And, and all yeah. of the big questions that any human asks themselves about about how am I going to live right. my best life. Um, I feel like straight Perfect. audiences would be able to relate to that, I and mean, then queer audiences would be affirmed They, they by should. Them. Absolutely. To your point, hey, straight people, we've related to your stories for decades. We've loved them. We've embraced them. And now it's your turn. So, so Jamie, <laughs> I want to thank you for coming on today. We are literally at the end of our time here um, you've been great. Your pro- upcoming project is for years to come. Please seek that out and support it. And uh, all the way along the line, as a prospective audience member, as part of uh, financial backing, um, obviously it's going to be great. Um, and, Jamie, thanks so much. You're an incredible talent and um, just so excited to see this project and the other ones that you're going to come out with in the future. Um, I want to thank Brody for his work on the show and uh, for his work on the Los Angeles Blade magazine. Um, You can pick that up in hard copy in L.A. as well as online. And I want to thank you, our audience, for tuning in every week. Uh, We love you. Um, Tell your friends to follow us. They can follow us on Google Podcasts. Um, You can Google us on Google and uh, find us there, various podcast places. But we love you and subscribe and 
Next week, we'll be back with an exciting Don't Miss show. I have no clue what it will be, but I can guarantee you, you will not want to miss it. For me and those of us at Rated LGBTQ Radio, I thank you, and we'll talk to you next week. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio. 